Welcome to the Statesman Journal's Explore Oregon podcast. I'm your host, Zach Ernest, and in each episode, producer David Davis and I highlight Oregon's most beautiful and interesting places. This podcast is brought to you by the American Forest Resource Council, supporting responsible forestry on public lands throughout the Pacific Northwest. Learn more at amforest.org. In this edition, we're having a conversation with the director of the Oregon State Marine Board. We'll talk about how the agency manages boats on Oregon's lakes, rivers, and bays, and the rise of non-motorized recreation across the state. But first, here's some guitar music to get us rolling. All right, so today we're joined by Larry Warren, the director of the Oregon State Marine Board. Now, this is the agency in charge of managing boats of all styles on Oregon's lakes, rivers, bays, and other waterways. In the past, they've been a little bit under the radar, but with the creation of a new permit system required for rafts and kayaks, some new rules over where you're allowed to water ski and wake surf, and the general rise in the number of boaters on the water, the Marine Board's been in the news a little bit more often. So we thought it made sense to have the director of the agency come on here and talk about all the stuff that's happening on Oregon's waterways. Larry, thanks so much for being here. Thanks, Zach. I appreciate the opportunity to come on and talk about our agency. And you're right. We've had just a lot going on in the last few years. And uh, any opportunity we can get out there and talk about what we do is a great opportunity for us. Great. So that's actually a really good place to start, I think. So starting off, give us a short explanation of what the Marine Board does. You know, what's your what's your role in managing the different types of boats that ply the so such a diverse um, number of waterways in Oregon? What do what do you guys do? Sure. You know, we, we often joke that we're one of the most misunderstood agencies out there. Uh, some people join us trying to join the Marines or they'll call us trying to join the Marines and we don't do that. Um, so, you know, I like to put in a plug. We're a small agency. We've got 39 staff. So when I talk about what we do, I always tell people, keep that in context. We we're led by a five member board and then I'm the director and we have staff that take care of a, a variety of things across uh, boating in Oregon. So one of the things we do is we are a resource for boaters and and the people that serve them. So most people that interact with our agency are going to do so when they title and register their boat or they buy a, an access permit, a waterway access permit. And so that is how most boaters interact directly with us. But we do so much more. If, if you go to a public boating facility in Oregon, it is almost sure that we have put grant money into that facility, probably some help with the engineering work. So we, we really invest in the boating facilities across the state, help those people that are providing those. We, we co-manage uh, the Aquatic Invasive Species Program with the Department of Fish and Wildlife. And that's an issue that's really nationwide. Oregon so far, we're in pretty good shape on that. So we try to keep invasive species out of, out of our state. Um, we, we have environmental programs that really help boaters and, and marina owners, facility owners keep, keep our waters clean. So things like clean marina programs, derelict vessel removals, uh, really important to keeping our Oregon waters clean. Safety and education. If you're a motorized boater, you've probably had to take an education course. And if you haven't, you should. And uh, we just really are out there working on boating safety and education messages. One of the biggest pieces of our budget is we contract with 32 of the 36 county sheriffs and the state police to provide marine patrol out on Oregon's waters. 
And we also lead the training efforts for those Marine Patrol folks to help make sure we're delivering our services in a consistent way across the state. And then this one catches some folks off guard. It's an area where we get into land is we, we regulate the guide and outfitter industry. So if you're on a horseback trip or if you're on a, a rafting trip or a fishing guide trip or a charter boat, um, Oregon State Marine Board is, is helping make sure that that's a good experience and that you're out with an outfitter and guide that's reputable and going to do good work. We've talked in this podcast a lot. I love rafting. I love boating and fishing. So it sounds like kind of a fun job. So what's what's your background in boating? You know, I mean, how do you get on the water and how did you end up in, in this job? Well, I'll end with how I got up in this job because sometimes that's the one I think about the most. But, but uh, you know, I grew up in Oregon, a lifelong boater. Uh, my grandfather had an old green fiberglass boat and we did everything from Eastern Oregon lakes and reservoirs to the Columbia River to the ocean. Had an uncle who just really invested in me as a as a young man and and making sure I got out and drift boat trips on the Sandy and Tillamook Bay and again he was a big ocean guy, and then I had my dad who was just this really uh, he was more of a small lakes kind of person and we always had this old junky fiberglass canoe that I think was more bondo than fiberglass by the time we were done owning it, and we took it everywhere you know Marion Lake. Uh, carried that thing up there more times than I can count. The Pudding River, um, going through the locks on the Willamette as a kid. Now as an adult, you can, you know, really have shifted a lot of my boating to being out um, in the ocean. My, I'm lucky enough that my family enjoys ocean fishing. And so most weekends you can find us uh, going out of Newport and heading west if the ocean allows it. Uh, but, you know, we also still find time to get up on the reservoirs, use our kayaks, use our little smaller boat that we have for some of those lakes and reservoirs, and really just enjoying everything that Oregon has to offer. So how I ended up in this job, you know, 21 years ago, I was getting out of the military. I wanted to get back to Oregon where I was from and uh, the state was hiring and I went to work for silver services to children and families. They were great first start to, to my state career. And I've wandered all around the state in various roles. Um, and, and then it was about five, six years ago, I had a chance to go work for state parks. And for the first time in my state career, I could take something I really love, like being outdoors and in the parks and that, and put it together with my professional career. So when the Marine Board job came open, um, I just knew that was one that was interesting to me. It's one I wanted. I love boats. I love boating. I love being out on the water. And I've got a good experience to help uh, lead the organization and serve Oregon boaters. All right. So today we are going to talk about a whole bunch of stuff from the rise of Oregon's non-motorized boaters to new permits and new rules, the impact of wildfires on Oregon's rivers, um, and what's allowed on streams across private land. So we're going to touch on quite a few things. Um, it'll be a pretty detailed cross-section of some of the issues the Marine Board deals with. But in the second half, to keep things fun, uh, Larry and I are going to pick our favorite places to go boating in Oregon. So stay tuned for that. Uh, but let's start here. So as a reporter covering outdoor recreation, I feel like your mission has evolved quite a lot over the past decade. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, but historically, the Marine Board focused primarily on motorboats, right? And while in more recent years, with the rise from non-motorized boats like kayaks and paddleboards, that's kind of required your agency to modify its mission a little bit. Is that Would you say that's accurate? Uh, Zach, you know, I think it's fair to say that we've traditionally 
focused our efforts on serving the motorized community. They they were and are still a large part, largest part of our funding source, and so it stands to reason that they get a lot of our attention. But um, one of the things that we've seen is that, you know, of course, boating's changing and adapting, and we have to adapt with that. So I thought about that, and, and as I think about that, and it's, you know, I think our mission has stayed fairly consistent in serving voters and safety and opportunity. But what's happened is that we see that change in those boating communities and recognize that we need to adapt and include them and, and serve them inside of our, our mission and what we do, which over time does lead to some changes in the mission as you, as you understand new boating communities and how they use the water. So, you know, one of the things that I often say is that I'm looking forward to the day that when the Marine Board says boater, we don't have to say whether it's a motorized or non-motorized, that everybody just says, yeah, we're boaters and we're in this together. And while we may enjoy the water in different ways, uh, we're all part of this bigger community of boaters. Gotcha. Do you have a good feel for either how the the split between those two groups has changed um, over the past decade, two decades. And I mean, obviously a lot of people do both. I mean, I love motorized and non-motorized boating. Obviously you do too, but do you have a, a feel or a rough breakdown of where the state is at as far as who's, who's doing what? Like, is there obvious divisions like 50, 50, 40, 60? Boy, you know, I, I'm, I'm going to try not to sound too bureaucratic to what should just be a real simple answer. Um, you know, non, you know, when, when we think about that split, and it's something we think a lot about, and you're right, a lot of people own both, and some people do just one or the other. But, uh, you know, since not all non-motorized boaters are required to give it a permit, we sort of have to dig into sort of um, recreational surveys and data and try to extrapolate some information. So, we, we know that we have 150,000 approximately registered motorized boats in the state. And it, it really would surprise me if it wasn't about 50-50 now. Mm -hmm. and, and when you think about it, you know, we, we work a lot under some of the Coast Guard regulations and the Coast Guard defines a boat. And, and part of that includes, uh, you know, kayaks, canoes, rafts, and the one that catches everybody off guard is paddle boards, right? <laughs> yeah. So when you think about bringing that community in there, I think it stands to reason that we're probably at or or right around 50-50 in terms of motorized, non-motorized use. Gotcha. Yeah, it, it felt like, uh, you know, this this dual nature of your mission um, was really front and center for uh, a recent vote that was that was in the news, I think, just last week. Um, so you guys voted to, to limit motorboating, jet skis, weights, wake surfing in the Willamette River in downtown Portland. And then there was some different regulations to Willamette Falls. So can you tell me about the decision and, you know, why that was a good move for what's an incredibly popular boating area in the summer. I mean, we're talking about a, a very, very busy area. And yeah, thanks. There, there's a lot of energy still around that decision. And so I'll, I'll do my best to explain it and just put out to folks listening today, the Marine Board's still out there ready to help you understand those new regulations. And I think it does reflect that we did have different voices at the table. I think that's actually a really good way to put that is that people are seeing um, some of those changes that we're, we're doing as an organization. And, 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 and to a bigger level, you might even say like, we definitely focus on the boating and the non-motorized and the motorized boating. But as an organization, we're also tuning into the fact that we sit in part of a larger suite of state agencies that are managing what's important to Oregon's natural resources. And so I think you saw some of that reflected in the board's decision. Uh, so this was this was a tough one. They, we went through 15 months of public process. We had cities, local government, 
county government. We heard from so many boaters on all sides. I think we had one board meeting where we might have had over 2,000 pages of board book of, of public testimony and input. And really just everybody trying to think about how can we all use this water and keep ourselves safe. And, and everybody had different goals uh, in terms of what they like to do. And we had to find a way to try to balance all that by, but also maintaining that, you know, being good to the environment, good for boating safety, pulling all that together. So, you know, the one thing that occurred to me is when we write rules, we have to unfortunately say what can't be done, right? That's how you write rules when you're in government. So I wish we could write the rules to say what could be done, because when you look at the stretch of river and the area was from the Willamette Falls down to the mouth of the uh, of the Willamette, the rulemaking stopped at the Hawthorne, but could imply that it, it goes to the mouth of the river. There's so much opportunity. Every kind of boater can still be out on the water doing doing something with their boat and enjoying the river. So sure, we had to um, take some action to restrict some activities in certain areas to keep those safety, uh, boating safety. But if we flip that paradigm and think about opportunity, I just want folks to realize there is still a lot of opportunity in that area to go use any type of boat to have fun and enjoy the water. Gotcha. Was, I mean, did it reflect, you know, I've been covering all kinds of outdoor recreation in Oregon for geez, 15 years now. And what you're seeing, not just on the water, but just about everywhere else is an increasing number of users everywhere. And I mean, are you seeing that on the water too? Like, are you just seeing a rise in the number of total people out in a boat, whether it's a kayak, a raft, uh, a motorboat, a jet ski? Like, are you just seeing increased use and then that manifests itself, especially in Oregon's biggest city? Uh, we are. You know, I, I laugh. I've been around Oregon long enough that if you ask me how many people live here, I still say three million, which I think is about <laughs> a million and a half short. And, and folks come to Oregon because they love the outdoors a lot of times. So they do. They get out on the water and and that shows up in congestion and different boating types. And, and it's something we're going to continue to wrestle with as a, as a state agency and a boating community for a while. I mean, you look out at some of the real big cities on a picture of the Chicago River in July, and it's just bumper to bumper boat. So we're not there yet. But at the same time, I think people that have been using the water for a long time around here um, are surprised at how much activity is happening and how many people are coming out to the water and just how busy and congested some of those waterways can be. Yeah. Um, all right. So the Willamette River decision was probably the most recent thing to jump out. But I think in my time covering you guys, the, the biggest news has been the creation of the waterway access permit for uh, non-motorized boats. So this required anyone paddling a boat longer than 10 feet to get a permit that costs $17 per year or $30 for two years. And that applies to most rafts, quite a few kayaks, most stand-up paddle boards, drift boats. Uh, the permit requirement went into effect last year after passing the state legislature in 2019. I know it was a long road to to get that bill passed, but what was the intent behind it and, and what are you doing with the, the new money that comes in? Sure. So simply put, the intent was to start serving non-motorized boaters. You know, our agency, as you mentioned, we'd spent 20 years or so just trying to figure out how to engage the non-motorized community. And, and we always were looking at it sort of through that motorized lens. And so we stepped back and we listened to what we heard consistently from everybody. And one thing people agreed on was we need more and better access that focuses on non-motorized needs. So we went out, we, we built this program uh, to be able to fund non-motorized access specifically. And it's really been just a nice, and 
I should also mention that there was a piece in there around some underserved population on uh, serving those type of voters, which I think is really important to the work that we're doing in the future. Uh, but this program really does a few things. One, it kept the funding going for the to help stop the spread of invasive species. So before folks that buy this permit had to buy an aquatic invasive species permit. And, you know, one of the things we often hear is my kayak will never spread invasive species. But last year, one of the best stops, I think, at a border checkpoint in Oregon was a couple kayakers coming out of state that add invasive species on their kayaks that were headed for the Deschutes River. So, uh, yes, it is an important program for everybody, not just motorized boats. And and But really, the crux of this was to provide new money to be able to grant for boating facilities that serve non-motorized and underserved populations. One of the things I'm really proud of is we started selling that permit back in January of 2020. And by October, we already had enough money to give money away through grant programs. And so um, it really takes a lot of effort to start a program, give money away that fast. And we were able to fund programs all or projects all across the state to help non-motorized boaters get in the water uh, better, safer, and easier. Yeah, I mean, uh, we did a quick story in kind of looking at how that first round of money that you collected, uh, you know, started to go out. And it was a lot of, you know, small projects, like there was a kayaking dock here, a bathroom there, uh, repaving a boat ramp, some stuff like that. Is that by design, like to provide these grants for a bunch of small projects rather than taking on giant ones? Yeah. So, you know, it, first, it was really important to me that we showed the non-motorized community we were going to do what we said we would do, which was use that money to do something for them. And so large projects will be a part of the non-motorized program in the future. But quite honestly, they can take decades of permitting and planning and engineering and and oftentimes we can serve non-motorized boaters with just small projects like we did in some of these first grant rounds. So really wanted to make sure we started getting that money out there and showing and demonstrating we were going to do what we said we were going to do. So one of the things that, you know, I want to sidebar just real quick on is just how much effort it takes from your local parks and county parks people to put these access sites together. We all know state parks does a great job. Everybody loves them. But if somebody hasn't called their local county city parks department thank them for the work these folks do to improve access in their communities you really should do that and and that showed up in the way that we um, saw these grant rounds where we saw communities from across the state uh, find um, ways to request that money and put it to use so we can't do it without them and i just really want to thank that community for their work Gotcha. You know, I remember, especially when this was in the in the legislature, um, you know, there was there was definitely some pushback from the non-motorized committee uh, community, you know, because we you know, we hadn't been used to to having to get um, a permit, you know, just to just to float in the water or stuff like that. Um, and then one of the advocates for it, Priscilla Macy, pointed out that it was similar to buying a uh, a fishing license. Almost. I mean, if you go fishing in Oregon, you're part of the community, um, you know, you get a quick license and you support the programs. Is that sort of what this was modeled after? Did you think about that sort of uh, way for explaining the need for it? Uh, we did. And, and, you know, I'm probably not supposed to have favorites, but I, I have one project that I was really just so pleased that it got funded out of that first round. And I think it highlights the goal. And it's down there in the city of Reedsport. And there was a little piece of property that it was sort of being used by non-motorized boaters, but it wasn't official and it was privately owned. And 
because of this program, the city of Reedsport was able to get some grant money to purchase that property. So future generations are going to be able to go out there and, and use our Oregon waters through a public access site, which is so important. And so, uh, yeah, it's exactly how I think about it. And I would encourage folks, if you haven't been down to the city of Reedsport to see all they're doing, they're just doing a great job building boating facilities, motorized and non-motorized. It's just, they've got a lot of good stuff going, but it really is that, you know, the way Priscilla talked about it, which is investing back in the programs that you use. Okay. Now, I did want to ask you specifically about one of the grants uh, that you sent out in that first round, just because it sort of, it, it caught my attention. And so in what I think was the largest grant from that first round, you awarded 100000 to uh, Viva Northwest to create 24 informational and multilingual boating safety videos. So, I mean, a project like a new kayak dock or, you know, a new bathroom or a boat ramp or something that, you know, that follows pretty logically. But how does this project fit into the mission of what you're trying to do, like these safety and multilingual boating safety videos? So when we when we added the ability to grant to those under, you know, community organizations that were serving the underrepresented communities, uh, we really didn't know how that was going to go over. And as we went through the legislative process, uh, we, we got overwhelming support. A lot of paddlers actually identified that was something that was important to them was to serve all the communities. And so we really do want to get that message out to all Oregonians. So we were we were surprised and excited when Vive uh, applied for a grant because we knew this was an opportunity to reach a community we hadn't done a very good job of reaching. And, and we've been working on those videos and it's been interesting, you know, just the process of talking with them and and scripting some of those videos, we found the way that we talk about uh, boating is so maritime industry lingo that it just doesn't make sense to a lot of people, even when it's translated. So it's been been a good effort for us. And and I would point out, you know, that a hundred thousand is a big figure, but when you think about 24 videos being produced that we're going to be able to share with partners and use for years and and hopefully save some lives with that message, uh, I think it's a great return on investment and it'll serve us well. Okay. So uh, beyond new rules and, uh, you know, permits and stuff like that, another reason that the Marine Board pops up, or at least that I'm, I'm writing about, are, you know, problems and accidents that occur in the water. So in 2020, uh, it sounded like there was kind of a spike in people getting into boats and getting on the water, fueled in part by the pandemic. So with that came the most uh, boating deaths since the 1970s. What did you see in terms of boat use this year? Um, I mean, is it a is the rise in deaths just a natural outcome of more people on the water, or is there something more to be concerned about here? Yeah, you know, we definitely saw and heard that everybody got out on the water last year. People were dragging kayaks out of their garages and boats out of the blackberry bushes and getting in the water, which was which was good. We is, we want people on the water. Uh, looking ahead, I think that's going to continue. Uh, I think people are still uncertain about their ability to travel outside the state. So would expect 2021 to be another big year for Oregon uh, boating. And, you know, I would love to tell you that we just could attribute all the rise in fatalities to that increased use. But I think that would be too easy and let us off the hook too easily. I think it, it highlights we still have work to do on our boater uh education and safety outreach messaging and rules. And, and that's something that we're really going to be focusing on uh, because we're just not going to accept that the increased use was a directly the only reason for the increased number of fatalities. So. Gotcha. So what's, so given that, I mean, what's your opinion on establishing more 
you know, restrictive or hardline life jacket or helmet rules. So, I mean, right now you're required to wear a life jacket in class three rapids, uh, but the rest of the time you just kind of have to have one in the boats. Um, I mean, I've seen petitions to require non-motorized boaters to wear a life jacket during the cold season or maybe year round. Um, if you have this uptick in accidents, you know, will you consider more forceful rules? I mean, how are you going to address this concern about safety? So, you know, as the Marine Board Director, of course, I'd, I would love everybody to be out there in their life jacket. And, and when I see friends and family posting pictures of themselves not in a life jacket on social media, I reach out and ask them if they'd like help picking one out to wear. But, you know, on the other hand, um, personal freedom, personal choice, it's, it's you know, keeping government in check. That's that's a strong sentiment for a lot of people and how they think about how they want government in their life. So this delicate balance that we have to do as a boating administrative organization is balancing personal choice and freedom with saving lives. And so you mentioned that cold water um, life jacket uh rule requests that we had a, a few months ago and the board did deny that petition which we knew spelled odd for a boating safety organization to deny a petition to make me make things safer but what they did was they said staff we want to look at this in a much broader context so bring us back more information we want to see what all the problems are and what solutions might exist that might even impact safety in more long lasting ways. And so we did that. We brought back a presentation to them in 2021 and we're already starting to work on uh, what that might look like going forward. And, and some things we may need some legislative help, some things we may be able to just take care of as an agency, but really we only get so many chances to change rules that really can get people um, interested and and so we got to be careful about making sure that when we go forward with this package it's not just to solve one problem but to try to solve all the problems that we see that are out there okay well let me let me push you just uh, just a little bit on, on this one um i mean you know i've been out on the water and you know the marine deputies have stopped me asked me to see i think it was an invasive species permit back when i got stopped and then they kind of looked around to see if i had life jackets in there wouldn't it be easy to just say, hey, you know, they can they could ticket a person for not wearing a life jacket in like a certain certain amount of water? I, I don't know. It, like, couldn't you it, it be an easier thing to to make that a more hardline rule, I guess? Or does that require a lot? I guess just thinking about the steps required to take people from, well, I, I might have to wear my life jacket to no, I need to do it. You know what I mean? Yeah. And, you know, of course, we look around at other states and and. And we all have various life jacket regulations, but most of them are fairly close. And, and, you know, again, as boating administrators, we'd say, sure, let's, let's require life jackets everywhere. But I think when you look around the country and you look at Oregon and what we've done, um, I don't know that that's where everybody in the boating community is at and really willing to step on board. And so, you know, rules without compliance don't get you where anywhere any either either. So we really need to focus on education, outreach, getting that message out there uh, because rules aren't always the answer. Um, they can feel like the easy answer, uh, especially to people that write the rules, but oftentimes rules without that education, outreach, and buy-in from the communities don't have an effect that we're looking for. Sure. So a lot of times, again, the issue isn't necessarily a, a life jacket, but in plenty of cases, uh, river obstructions, so dangerous logs in the water, have led to a lot of these really tragic boating accidents that we've seen, especially last year. 
Uh, there was like 22 rescues in a few days because of some downed trees on a popular section of uh, the Sanium River. Um, and I suspect with, you know, a lot of fire damaged trees from the Labor Day fires, uh, they're likely to fall into popular rivers like the North Sanium, the Clackamas, Mackenzie, the North Umpqua. So what's the role for the Marine Board in dealing with those kind of trees in the water? First, what can you actually do about them as far as either removing or making places safe? And secondly, I know you have, uh, you know, a website that tracks this stuff. So take, take me through that. How do you deal with dangerous spots in the water? Sure. And, and, you know, on the Sandy Ann piece, that one was just really tragic. We had, we had an area with a lot of uh, trees down and a lot of local kids were out floating on more pool toys than boats and they just couldn't navigate around those. And it, it resulted in quite a few river rescues. And that's something that while we don't regulate pool toys, we definitely are interested in water safety and it's an area we're watching, but that to get to the topic of, you know, hazard trees, um, it's always a balance, right? So as a boating agency or a boater, I think of them as a hazard, but somebody on the fish and wildlife side would think of them as habitat for fish. In fact, sometimes they'll spend quite a bit of money to bring in trees to build up habitat. So, so when we, the Marine Board take this on, we can't just take it on with the boater view. We have to reach out and we do that with our partners at Fish and Wildlife, U.S. Forest Service, and we really look at what trees need to go for safety, what ones need to stay for good environmental reasons. And then quite honestly, I know it's popular for folks to say, well, just put me out there with a chainsaw and I could take care of this issue. But if you've watched what it takes to remove some of those hazard trees, very dangerous work. Uh, not a lot of people that are capable of doing that work. And so even that can come into play as whether we even have the ability to go remove a tree if we want to. So we've we've been working at it. You mentioned the fires and the fires for folks that don't know. One of the things we've got to think about is all those down trees, not all of them, obviously, but a lot of them are going to end up in the water and they're going to move through the system and they're going to create obstructions. And so we've been working uh, already on having contracts in place so that if there's an extraordinary hazard tree, we can get right to it and try to remove it. We've renewed all of our conversations with those partners, the Fish and Wildlife, the U.S. Forest Service, so that we're ready to act as a team about thinking about the environment and boating safety together so we're not just acting unilaterally, causing problems out there. And um, the one message I would want to make sure folks get, though, is if, especially if you're new to boating, we will never make a river hazard free, even if we just went at it and, and tried to remove all the hazards. It's always going to be a natural environment. You're always going to want to be aware, understand river dynamics, scout ahead and do all those good things. Mm -hmm. Is there a metric that you guys consider as far as when a log is an extraordinary hazard versus when it's good fish habitat? I guess I, you know, to take you back to the, to the Sanium a little bit, I mean, there was just, it's such a popular part of the river. There was so many people who are getting stuck in there. I mean, do you balance like numbers or number of incidents versus fish habitat and stuff like that? Yeah. You know, that one was a good one. So we ended up on that on that particular situation, we were able to get some staff in a boat. We had some of the ODFW staff. We had some of the fire rescue people that were actually the ones out oftentimes rescuing these kids. We went and took a look and we just found a balance. We found things like we could remove some of the limbs to make it safer, but we could leave the root ball for the fish. And, and those are the kind of solutions that we can work on together is, is some, it's not always an all or nothing. And so there's not a clear metric. There's not a, if, you know, if it does this, it does that. Uh, but there's always that ongoing discussion and look at what we can do. And sometimes we're also cognitive of the fact that an obstruction today 
if it rains tonight, it might get moved on naturally. So we might not want to spend $10,000 to move a log that's going to move by itself in a few days. Gotcha. So finally, one of the last issues I wanted to, to touch on was one that's just really fascinating to me, and that is public waterways versus private land. Oregon has a lot of these places where, you know, actually just in my backyard where I, where I live, you know, you'll have houses that are private and have deeds to the middle of the river, but then you have a waterway running through it. And Oregon doesn't really have a hard law governing this. Instead, there's an attorney general decision that kind of says, basically, if you can float a boat down it, you know, you can float through that private property on this public waterway. But if it's, you know, not low, if you can't float a boat on it, then it becomes private. It's a really confusing setup and does cause issues in, in some places. I mean, what are your thoughts on Oregon having a more straightforward law or rules detailing this public waterways versus private land uh, issue? Yeah, and for, for your listeners that maybe aren't up on this issue, they might miss this. This is a really sticky issue, and it does oftentimes come down to public access versus private landowner rights, and where is that balance? And so, you know, I think we've been involved over the years in efforts to try to get clarity, to try to work with those groups. And so while I think an end goal would be, yeah, it'd be great to have some clear line in the sand, but you know, this, the sand, that line in the sand is only good till the next tide, right? When there's different opinions or changing, changing views on, on public use and public use doctrine on, on the rivers. So, you know, the AG opinion back in 2005 has helped. We used to get a lot of conflict between landowners and voters, and we don't, hear as much about those conflicts, about where their rights end and, and the landowner rights begin. Um, so, you know, if there was ever an effort underway to take that on, we'd certainly be at the table and have some ideas about that discussion. And in meantime, we've just really taken our opportunity to focus on educating boaters on their rights to access floatable water and really approach it from that direction. So, you know, it, it, it's a good goal to have that clarity. Um, I don't know that we would ever get there, even with what would feel like a clearly written law, and and it would be a long and tenuous discussion. So I think it's best to just keep down the path and and working towards that goal. And one of the reasons I I ask is because again this this issue that I've covered so much is Oregon's population increasing, a lot of people moving to the state who want who move here specifically for outdoor recreation, and. As a whitewater kayaker out on the rivers a lot, I still feel like there is room for growth there. Like, you know, there's a lot you can get a really good experience if you just get, you know, some rudimentary education on boating and stuff. And so, you you know, you look for growth areas and there's, you know, these areas in there. Do you expect boating numbers to keep increasing as the state's population increases? Like what have you seen over the last decade as far as the rise in the number of people on the water? And what do you anticipate seeing in, the, in like the next decade? Yeah, I think when we look out ahead, we just would expect continued growth. Again, Oregon draws people that are interested in the outdoors and whether it's motorized, non-motorized and all these opportunities that are coming out there, uh, small little personal electric hydrofoils and all these ways that people can get out and enjoy the water. I would expect that to just continue to grow. And so um, we'll keep working on those issues. And, you know, public access it's under attack more than I think sometimes people would realize. And so, again, I would encourage people uh, that are interested in, in making sure that, that themselves and their future generations can access the water, really find ways to support public access. So 
Uh, there are a lot of efforts underway out there to do that and just so critical for our ability uh, to do what we all love. Uh, the alternative, of course, privatized access, more expensive, people can't afford it. And so really find ways to support people that are providing you that public access. All right. Well, that kind of sums up sort of the uh, the policy and the rules side of things. When we come back, Larry and I are going to talk uh, about four of our favorite places to get out and paddle and motorboat. Uh, so stay tuned for that. The following message is brought to you by the American Forest Resource Council. Did you know healthy managed forests provide benefits for all forest users? Science-based forestry provides habitat for many wildlife species such as elk and deer, filters pollutants from our water and air, supports outdoor recreation, and provides renewable wood products and good-paying jobs. AFRC stands for Sustainable Forests and Healthy Communities. Learn more at amforest.org. Okay, welcome back. So anytime we have a director on the podcast, we try to focus some time on the more fun side of the recreation. So it's not all rules and regulations and policy and stuff like that. So again, per tradition, Larry and I are going to do a little fantasy football style draft and each pick four of our favorite places to paddle or drive a boat. We're not going to require specific things here. It can be a motorboat. It can be a kayak. It can be a raft. Um, and same for place. Bay, Lake, River Creek, whatever. So Larry, I'm going to give you the first pick as the guest for your first selection in our Oregon boating draft. What is your choice? Well, this one's an easy one for me, the Pacific Ocean. And, and <laughs> I, you know, I've entered it from Astoria as a kid mostly, and now I'm out of Newport. And it's just, it's, it's amazing. If you've never seen the sunrise or the sunset from 40 miles off our coast in uh, the, the fish that I catch in the ocean feed me and watching the whales and just seeing sites that so many Oregonians will never see, which is our beautiful coastline from the ocean. Um, it's just, it, it, it is awe-inspiring every time I go out there. Is there a specific place that you like going out most? Yeah, you know, now we we typically leave out a new port and uh, we'll just do everything from good bottom fishing to salmon fishing, tuna fishing, uh, and everything in between. All right. Well, from that very, very broad and uh, large body of water, um, I'm going to go much smaller and much more specific for my first pick. And I think over the last few years, whitewater rafting trips where I can fish has become my favorite thing to do. Like bar none, that's my favorite style of outdoor recreation, just because I've been able to start bringing my six-year-old daughter. She loves lap rapids. She loves catching fish. And that combo together is basically impossible to beat. So my first pick is going to be the John Day River from Clareno to Cottonwood. Super famous river. You need a special permit. We did an entire podcast about it and, you know, usually camp for a few nights, depending on where you start. But when you're on the river, I mean, the power of the canyon scenery combined with the excellent smallmouth bass fishing and then really fun little rapids. It's just you can't you can't beat it. Um, so I'm going back this year. I'll go back every year. But uh, this moment and place and time is my favorite. So that's my first pick, the John Day River. Wow, I, I should have thought of that one. I, I love the John Day as well. Um, I guess, I, you know, my second pick, 
uh, it will be a, a more specific than just the Pacific Ocean off, off of Newport, which is, uh, I love Crescent Lake. It's it's over there out of Oak Ridge. You kind of come up through Eugene. It's scenic. It's beautiful. If you went up there right now, people would be, uh, a few people, it's really cold up there right now, would be fishing for Mackinac. Uh, my family, my, that's where my daughter and son learned to kayak. It's beautiful, clear water. Uh, we sort of tricked my daughter because it was so clear. She thought it was shallow. She didn't realize she was kayaking in 50 feet of water. Um, beautiful snow-capped mountains, kokanee fishing. You go up there in July and it's going to be filled with uh, uh, people skiing and tubing and having fun. It's just one of those lakes. It's just so iconic for Oregon. There's great camping, a uh, few great restaurants nearby, and it's just it's an area my family likes to get to as, as often as we can. So I'm curious, um, one of my favorite places in the winter historically was Diamond Lake because you could go ice fishing. Can you ice fish up at Crescent Lake? You know, they, they never get enough ice to ice fish, but I have had mornings there where we have sort of been breaking through very light ice to get out to the open water to fish. And, and it has made me wonder what exactly I was doing that for a hobby for. So. <laughs> All right. Well, I'm going to jump into my second place here. And it's a little similar to your pick because I wanted to get to, um, you know, a, a big lake for the second time. So my second uh, pick is going to be um, Detroit Lake. Now, obviously, Detroit is a place of real heartbreak right now, given the impact of the Labor Day fires to the town. But look, the lake is open right now. You can go fishing and get out there in your boat right now at this moment. And in the future, as this area looks to rebuild, the lake is going to play a big role. You know, that's always going to be a big draw because it's a, you know, it's a reservoir, but it's a really scenic reservoir. And it's also a great place to fish. My favorite thing to do at Detroit Lake is actually to come there in, in December and you know, when the water levels down and the fishing is remarkably good. Like if you've ever wanted to be guaranteed of catching your limit, you got to go there when the water level is low uh, and they'll just come up all the time. Um, one of my favorite trips was actually when the reservoir got so low that the only way we could access the water was by hauling a John boat down through the mud. And the fishing was just bananas. Like you would put down a line and you would catch a fish just as soon as it got down. You couldn't even get it down to the depth you wanted because somebody would, you know, grab it right away. So Detroit, it's just such a, a great multi-use lake. You can water ski up there. Uh, you can kayak into the little coves. And of course, you can fish. So my second pick has to be Detroit Lake. Uh, you know, another great pick. I was up there a few weeks ago doing some winter uh, kokanee fishing and uh, you know this was a Saturday in the middle of January and the parking lot was nearly full for the low water ramp which is great people out like you said this is a community that can that can use some people up there recreating and, and bringing their dollar tourism dollars up there um, my uh, my third pick is one that you know I thought about it and I think this is probably the area I have had more types of boats and every single boat I've owned on which is the Willamette River and, you know, it runs right through Salem and, and it's amazing how many people in Salem have never been on it in a boat. But, you know, growing up, I can remember I used to canoe it. One of my favorite things to do was to go through the Willamette locks in a canoe, which as a kid was a really great way to just annoy the lock master that they had to come <laughs> run the locks for you in a canoe. I'd also say it's about a 45 minute lock through. So you do it a few times and maybe the joke's on you, not on them anymore, but I've, <laughs> I've, I've fished that area. I've run sleds up here around Salem and done some fishing and boating. And it's just an area that 
when you really think about that system and how many communities it serves in Oregon and all the different types of boating that happens on the Willamette River and, and just other people that enjoy the river, you know, that don't have boats, um, it's one that's just really been a big part of my life. Man, that's such a great pick because we talk about this all the time. I swear the Willamette gets this ridiculous reputation of being like a, a polluted stream or something like that. And that's just like violently untrue. Like it drives me crazy. The Willamette, it's wonderful. I used to go hike down there and swim almost every day. Um, I brought my nephews down there all the time because it is, it's so close to town. You know, when I lived in West Salem, you know, we just put in at Wallace Marine and go for a little float or you'd come like Independence into Salem. And that's a beautiful stretch of river. And you don't think about it because you think of it as an urban river. But once you just get outside of it, it's very forested. Uh, there's a ton of birds everywhere. Um, it's a great place to raft or kayak or, or boat. You can do a lot out there. And I think it actually, it's it could use more use. Like I think more people could get out on the Willamette. Yeah, definitely. All right. So for my third pick, I wanted to pick one of the really scenic lakes around Oregon because, you know, Oregon is famous for beautiful lakes. So I wanted to pick one that was up on Willamette Pass because Willamette Pass has a lot of really great lakes. Um, it was tough. I was stuck between Waldo and Summit Lake because both are absolutely stunning lakes. Uh, but I got to end up picking Waldo Lake as my third pick not only because it's so beautiful, you know, one of the clearest lakes in the world, but also because it's gigantic and there's just a ton of area to explore. I don't really go fishing at Waldo Lake, but I do go snorkeling um, because, you know, you put your, you know, you can see the shadow of your boat like way, way deep down when you're like over, you know, 50 feet of water. It's so clear. Uh, a caveat here. So Waldo Lake's the pick, but only in September or early October when there aren't hordes of mosquitoes up there. And I'd probably pick a weekday, too, because that place does uh, get fairly crowded. The lake does a great job of spreading people out uh, on the weekends. It's a huge lake, lots of room for everybody. Uh, but for campsites, um, give me Waldo Lake on a September day, maybe two or three nights camping in the little hidden campsites along the shoreline. Uh, yeah, so Waldo Lake is going to be my third pick. Wow, you know, yeah, that that. Waldo Lake just speaks to so many Oregonians. And I laugh when you mentioned the mosquitoes on the Willamette Pass. I remember one time I was actually at Crescent Lake and, and I went into the store and asked the, the local person, said, what do you guys do to not get eaten alive by the mosquitoes? And she said, we stay inside. <laughs> so yeah, they can, they can sometimes get the best of you, but you know, when you're out on the water, they often leave you alone. So don't sit and camp, get out on your boat and, and enjoy those. So you know, I was my, my fourth pick. I think it's one that would surprise a lot of people, especially if they've been there, because they might wonder, boy, Oregon's got so many scenic places to be. Why would this be the one? But it's really where my boating began. And that's there's this little reservoir called Mackay Reservoir just outside of Pendleton. Um, it's, it's five minutes from the McDonald's. So you can, you know, pick up your McDonald's and head to this reservoir. So it's sort of an urban rural type reservoir. It is, it's, it's beautiful in terms of, it, you know, that kind of that prairie area that's around the Pendleton area. That's not necessarily like a lot of Oregon, uh, but it's where I've, I just, that's where I fished with my grandfather so much as he lived in that area. And I can just remember so many nights of uh, getting, he would get off work and we would head to the reservoir and fish and water ski and, and hang out with family. And, you know, it was pretty neat. A few summers ago, I was able to take my kids up there. 
and and it was just such a homecoming to step onto that reservoir and see, oh wow, yeah, this is this is the connection that that built the fire for my passion for boating. So um, again, if, if folks are out there that have been there and are thinking, boy, we need to show Larry some better places to go. Um, again, it's just one of those reservoirs that's got a special place for me. And, and I think probably a lot of people in that area really like that. It's just a good place for the community to get out and recreate. Well, that's a great pick. Um, I also struggled trying to, trying to come up with my fourth pick because there are so many great options. Like I was thinking of, um, uh, geez, Anthony Lake over in the Elkhorn Mountains. Yeah. Or, you know, Hosmer Lake or, you know, Sparks Lake, those really dramatic, uh, you know, mountain, mountain lakes. But, you know, I want I ended up getting sentimental with my pick, too. So for my fourth pick, um, I'm going to do the North Sanium River from uh, Mill City to Mahama. And this is just the place where I have really started to love that combination of running rapids and fishing. And it's the place where my six year old daughter, Lucy, has really started to to learn how to love that kind of thing and love being out on the boats and always wants to go out there with me. So the thing I love so much about that stretch is you've got these nice class two borderline class three rapids where, you know, it's exciting. You got to be on top of your game, but then you can throw the anchor down in these fishing holes. And, you know, we usually just catch some, some fun little trout, which is a blast for her, but you can also catch salmon and steelhead if you're, if you're good at it. Again, there's quite a lot of wildfire impact and, you know, there's some issues, going to be some issues with access, but, you know, I have confidence that these areas are going to get rebuilt and that the river is going to play a big role in the, the Sanium Canyon coming back. And I've already been back there and floated this section since the fires a couple times. It's already looking better. And so, you know, I, I think this is going to be a way for people to fall in love with the Sanium Canyon again. So North Sanium River from right around Mill City to Mahama. And Zach, you know, that's a, that's such a beautiful area and, and you're right. It's going to be interesting to see it change as it recovers from the fire. And I, you know, I noted you and I have both, both talked about taking our daughters out. My son is also a great boater fisherman. And I would just offer that as a parent of a 17 year old daughter, uh, how important boating has been, uh, you know, how many people can say their 17 year old kid will still get up at four in the morning to drive somewhere to do something with them for the whole day that doesn't, <laughs> doesn't involve their technology. And so, you know, it's such a great family activity. It highlights that and that investment we put into uh, getting our kids out on the water pays off dividends uh, through those teen and early adulthood years. Yeah, I mean, I just I really feel like it teaches you something because there's a lot to it. There's the planning side of it. There's the physical side of running the rapids and learning a skill like it's so hands on, you know. Technology doesn't enter into boating, I don't think, very much once you're out on the water. And so, yeah, I couldn't agree with you more. Larry, thanks so much for taking some time to not only talk about cool places in Oregon to get on the water, but also the policy decisions and things that the uh, State Marine Board is doing. Great. And thank you for the opportunity. That's about all the time we have for this edition of the Explore Oregon podcast. We hope this gave you some insight into the Oregon Marine Board and maybe some extra motivation to get out and enjoy some of Oregon's waterways. If you like what you heard, make sure to check out previous episodes at statesmanjournal.com explore to help plan your next outdoor adventure. You can also find us at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify, where you can subscribe and have future episodes delivered right to you. We'd like to thank our sponsor, the American Forest Resource Council. AFRC supports responsible forestry on public lands throughout the Pacific Northwest.
for the environment, for our economy, and for our future. Learn more at amforest.org. Thanks for listening.